0: Oh man, it's good to be here today. Uh, I can talk, so I apologize. Last week, yeah, I had been silenced. The Lord had silenced me, man. I, I felt like I just couldn't even say anything. I was, and you guys heard me coughing. So uh, anyways, thank you. A big thank you to Pastor Jim Wellsan. Thank you for preaching on the fly. He just, that morning, he got notification and he was ready to roll. So uh, thank you so much. And we were blessed and encouraged. Uh, Who got to go to the fair? All right, all right, sweet, sweet. Who got some Twinkies or fried Twinkies? Anybody get anything like that, nasty stuff? Who feels like a Twinkie this morning, all right? Okay, so good, right on. I'm glad you feel good. Uh, You are a sanctified, holy Twinkie this morning, if you are here. Um, One thing, a few things before I get started into my sermon I can't, my, my voice is at about 90% maybe, so I can't guarantee I won't be hacking into the microphone. I will try my best, all right, but be gracious with me. Um, if you have not gotten one of these little questionnaires, uh, you guys have gotten in the past two weeks. They're in the back on that counter back there on your way out. There's a nice white little box. Just do me a favor, fill this out. It's anonymous. It's, it's a few questions. I want you to be blunt and as honest as possible. Whatever you want, all things are fair. Uh, answer those questions for me and place them in that box, or I'll have to hunt you down ruthlessly. More so than Michigan and Ohio State guys would. Um, No. So do that for me, please. Uh, This will be my last Sunday with you for about a month. About a month. Um, So I'm going to go to Kentucky to a biblical counseling conference so I can become more equipped to help you guys. Uh, so be praying for that time. I'm also going to see our students. We got about 10 students now uh, from our church up in Kentucky, either getting trained or working, on churches up there, getting trained. So I'm going to try and just visit them and love on them, take them out to dinner and stuff like that uh, while they're in Bible college. And so I'll be praying for that time because we're going to have a Hawaii prayer night where we'll be praying for you while we're there. So I'm looking forward to that. So those three weeks that I'm gone... Uh, you guys will have some guest speakers, and I'm really excited. Please come and hear them and and be encouraging to them as we train up leaders. That's uh, D.A. Carson, probably the leading New Testament scholar in the world, was asked recently, he said, what's one of the the most important things a, a young pastor can give himself to doing? He said, preach the word, pray, and train up leaders. And so that's one of the things we're trying to do, and when when we allow other people to preach that God has gifted in his training, praise God. That's a gift to our church, and so we want to hear them preach the word and teach what what God has laid on their heart. And so uh, we're going to have, first week going to be Jim Wellsan again, thank you. The second week will be Nick Tanaka. He's going to be doing an exciting sermon. I'm really excited about about the gospel and technology, right? A gospel view of technology, for those of you who got a new iPhone or a new Note or something like that this week, maybe. And then we're going to do the third week will actually be Keone Cadman, our youth director. He's going to be preaching a gospel center view of the home from, I believe, Deuteronomy 6. Is that still correct, right? So we'll be working, and so I'm excited for that. So you guys come out and check them out. And I will miss you. I'll be praying for you. My phone will be on while I'm at the conference, but while I'm on vacation, good luck <laughs> It's you and God, all right? So pray, I'll pray for you, and if any emergencies come up, you can tell me when I get back, all right? I'm going dark, I'm unplugging, and, and you won't be able to find me, all right? Um, so, that's that. All right, let's get started. Genesis chapter 34. Kione, I noticed you struggled there at the end of your reading, and you struggled, the very last thing you said was, may God bless the reading of his word. And I don't know if that was an intentional struggle or what was going through your mind, but considering the subject matter of the chapter, it can be hard to say after a chapter like that, may God bless the reading of his word. Genesis 34 is one of the most Horrendous chapters, in it probably actually is the most horrendous chapter in the entire book of Genesis. Uh, it may be even one of the top ones in the Bible, but definitely in the book of Genesis. And so this sermon is actually a hard sermon. I've been praying, thinking about it for a long time. Uh, there's going to be graphic content in this sermon. I'm just going to tell you, this is going to be rated M for mature. Uh, if you don't want your children, if you have young children here with you, uh, and you don't want them to hear some of the things, we're going to be talking about rape and sexual assault, because that's what the chapter kind of revolves around. So if you don't want them to hear that, now is maybe a time you can take them over to the, the children's church or excuse them. Um, but this will be a mature audience's primarily sermon. Uh, if you have high schoolers, teenagers, teenagers, um, I would have them sit here for this because it's probably nothing they don't already know or have been exposed to. All right, so what happened? So for those of you who are just joining us, we've been working our way through Genesis. If you remember, the last sermon we had was from Jacob and Esau, and he had just had his reunion, so to speak, with Esau. God told him after 20 years of exile, Jacob, it's time to go home time to go home. And so he goes home, and if you remember, he lied and cheated his brother Esau out of basically his birthright and his blessing, and Esau now wants to kill him. That's the last time he saw Esau, and so 20 years later, he's a little anxious about seeing his brother, twin brother Esau again. And so they go, and they meet, and and hope against hope, he prays, God, please deliver me from Esau. He's coming out with 400 men, and everything is all good, and, and You guys remember all that, and they go, and they go their separate ways. Esau doesn't want to kill him. They hug, they kiss. I've missed you. It's been a long time. They go their separate ways after that. That's in a nutshell. God had commanded Jacob to go to Bethel, to go home, go home to Bethel. Jacob settled instead after Esau. He settled in Shechem. 20 miles, 20 miles away, that's it. 20 miles short of full obedience. And I said two weeks ago that partial obedience in God's eyes is always disobedience. When God gives us a prescription, brothers and sisters, he means it to be followed precisely such that partial disobedience to God's commands always comes at a cost. And here's the deal. Sometimes that cost will not be paid mostly by you. Sometimes you might not suffer the brunt of your disobedience to God. It might be your children. It might be your children. And this is what happens in our account this morning. Jacob's partial obedience is paid by his daughter, and his sons. So we're going to need lots of help from the Holy Spirit to, uh, I hope, edify you this morning in this very dark topic. Um, and so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, just, we thank you for Christ, Lord, that just as we sang, Father, that, uh, Lord, your purposes, they will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Father, may that be true in our lives and the lives of these people in here this morning. God, who may have suffered under uh, the weight, an awful sin of sexual assault and violence. God, may that be true of them, that your purposes would ripen fast in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say through your word, to give hope in this dark area, and Lord, may you equip your people to be agents, to be ambassadors of the gospel, the, the light, the hope that is ours in Christ to a hurting world in our community, in Jesus' name, amen. All right so in essence here's what happens they move into Shechem and they're the new family in town you ever been the new family in town anybody ever had to deal with that all right if you're just moving here you're the new family right now all right if you're visiting with us you're kind of like the new family I'm a military child so I have known my whole life what it's like being the new kid in town and so they're adjusting to this new town and their daughter specifically Leah's daughter why is that important Leah, you remember Rachel and Leah? Rachel was smoking hot, Victoria's Secret model. Leah, not so much, right? Nobody wanted her. The girl, nobody wanted, not even her own dad. Leah's daughter, Dinah, Jacob's likely least favorite wife. You're going to see the seeds of favoritism here. His daughter, Dinah, as they're adjusting, she's likely a teenager, she goes out and does what teenagers do, explores the town. He goes, check out what what my new home is like. And, And while she's out, the text doesn't waste any time. While she's out, a man, a leader, specifically of the town, sees her, seizes her, and rapes her. Jacob finds out, And Jacob holds his peace. Dad figures out what happened, and Dad does what? Nothing. He holds his peace. He doesn't say anything. Why doesn't he say anything? That's another sermon for another time. But the end of the chapter gives us a clue. What's his response when he finds out what Simeon and Levi did? Does he rebuke them for the heinous sin they do? No, what does he say? You have made me stink who's jacob concerned about himself his view how other people are viewing him not what's happening to my children another story for another time but jacob finds out and holds his peace there are times brothers and sisters when expressing outrage is when or when not expressing outrage is unhelpful there are things that are so wicked, so awful, so terrible that we ought to express moral anger and outrage and in so doing we are reflecting the very nature and wrath of God against those things. One of those things would be when your daughter gets raped. You want to know another thing? Abortion would be another one. You want another one? Anytime any innocent person is, is oppressed We should be outraged at these things. Not saying in all these things there's not grace or mercy. But these things should outrage us. To be silent is actually unhelpful. And so that's what Jacob does. And in his silence, his sons catch wind of the news. And they come in furious, enraged as you would be if you caught news of this. They're enraged, not only at the news, but they also see their father's lack of response and doing nothing, as they have been disgraced, not only the sister, but the whole family. And so what happens? They go out and they they deceive. They, They deceive. They start to deceive the king, Hamor's father. They deceive the prince, who now he wants to marry his daughter, Dinah. So he rapes her, and then he wants to marry her. All good, right? No. doesn't make any sense. Commentators are just all over the map on this as to what's happening. I think I know exactly what happened. I think Hamor and Shechem are sicko. I think he's got a fantasy, a power, a control. I raped you physically, now I'm going to own you by buying you. power, and this is what often comes down when we're talking about sex assault and any kind of physical abuse, it's often power and control, and this is exactly what I see playing out on the pages here. And so he offers to buy them, basically being very lavish. Name your price. Yeah, here's the normal bride price for a wife. I'll pay that and whatever else you want. Give me her. And so they deceive them and you you heard it as it was read. Basically they say, We'll only We'll only give you our daughter if you do what? You get circumcised. You and every man in town. Why? Because that's their covenant sign. That's the covenant sign. That, so now they're using God's covenant sign with them. That's a sign that we are your people, exclusive from all the other peoples of the earth. And they're using that now to deceive and to destroy. They say, you, all the other guys get circumcised. The king and the prince go back. They convince the townspeople to do it. It sounds like a great idea. All the guys do it. On the third day, all the men are sore. Two of the sons, not all the sons, why is that? Two of the sons, why? Because these are Dinah's blood brothers, the sons of Leah, the rejected wife. Do you think Jacob would have done nothing had that been Joseph? I don't think so, neither do they. Simeon and Levi pick up a sword and they kill every single man in the town as revenge. And you say, what? These are God's people. These are this family was hand picked. They this, the Levites will later become the priests who will serve before God in the temple. His descendants will do that. And now here he is at the beginning Genesis 34, murdering and slaughtering fathers and brothers and sons and plundering property. What in the world is going on with this book? It's awful. It's awful. I don't recall hearing this story in Sunday school as a child. Or any church, for that matter. Do you? This is why. It's awful. There's no champions in this story. If we read the Bible as if, okay, how can I mimic or imitate? What's the lesson for me? You're not going to walk away with any champions in this story. Shechem's awful, brother's exact extreme vengeance, dad's passive and relatively disengaged. And here we see the least favorite wife and the only daughter, Dinah, not being cared for. The seeds of jealousy and resentment are planted right here. Why? Because see, Leah's sons, it's Leah's sons later when we get to the next major narrative, Joseph. Who leads the way in planning what to do with Joseph? Leah's sons. Leah's sons. And they will plan an awful thing against his favorite son, Joseph. I'm excited to get into that narrative. Today, we're going to focus on this awful chain of events that sets in motion that whole thing, this rape of Dinah. It's a prevalent problem, brothers and sisters, in our church is. In our church is. This is a prevalent problem in our community. This is a prevalent problem in America and one that's almost never spoken about. I've never, ever heard a sermon and anybody address this issue of sex assault. But it's a, it's a massive issue. Here's some numbers. There's an infographic here on the screen. Some of you in the back might not be able to see it. I'll read it for you. Basically, sex assault occurs in 10 to 14% of all marriages. Marriages. In other words, here's the principle. No means no, and that doesn't change when you have a ring on your finger. No means no. Every two minutes, somebody in the United States is sexually assaulted. 17% of men and 25% of women. That works out to be one in five and one in four of men and women are or will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. So if we just started counting out one, two, three, four, five, one, two, one in five and one of four of you in here in this room will be victims or have been of sexual assault in their lifetime. 80% of the victims are all under 30 Only 5 to, get this, only 5 to 20% of sexual assault victims are actually reported. Only 5 to 20%. 90% of young women involved in prostitution were sexually abused as children. And 80% of victims are assaulted by a known acquaintance. You get that? 80% are known to the victim. Only 20% are strangers. And sexual assault, what is it? It's not just forcible rape. It's not just... uh, It's actually any type of sexual type or contact or behavior where no consent is given or obtained. I'll give you another definition here in a second. A few other numbers, additional numbers. On average, there is one child molester in every square mile of America reported by the Department of Justice. 16 to 19-year-old girls are four times more likely to be abused than any other age group. It hits all demographics, all locales, and Maui alone, now we're not talking nationally, Maui. In the past three to five years, there have been police officers, school teachers, family members, family friends, strangers, and yes, pastors, all arrested on Maui for sexual assault. the past three to five years. That's every position, every demographic you can think of. Then there's the high-profile cases, like you hear about in the news, the Duggar scandal, or the Sandusky at Penn Penn State University scandal. Needless to say, friends, this is a problem that we cannot afford to bury our heads in the sand about and not talk about. This also means that there are many maybe even some in here who are suffering in silence and alone. So I want to encourage you. I want to raise awareness of this problem, if I can, as a church, that we can be... A so what is it? What is sexual assault? Is there any type of sexual behavior or Contact. Contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. Any of those things. So, here's the deal. Sex assaults painful on many levels. Painful on many levels. Why? Because it distorts fundamental realities, and it destroys our perception of the world we live in. So I'm going to look at three. There's a lot of areas that we have. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to talk about two, because we don't have time for the third one. It distorts worship. Sex assault distorts worship. it distorts identity, your identity, and it destroys community distorts worship, it distorts your identity, and it destroys your community. There's a lot of other things to be said. This is one sermon to raise awareness and talk about the hope of the gospel and all of it, and how Christ restores worship, how he restores and reroots your identity, and how he creates community again. All of it there, but we're only going to have time to talk about the first two. So number one, sex assault distorts Worship. How does it distort worship? Think about that for a second. How does a rape of Dinah or of anybody else distort your worship? You can kind of imagine. Well, let me help you. Genesis chapter 1, God created us in his image and in his likeness to reflect his glory and his holiness and to spread that across all of the creation. And we were made to be in relationship to not just others, but to him, and to know him of every other creature. We're the only ones made in his image and in his likeness, and that he said that this is very good. And in sex assault, Satan adds his own perverted distortion into the picture. How does this happen? Victims of sex assault tend to view God through the lens of their abuse it distorts their worship. They start to view God through the lens of their abuse. I'm gonna give you an example. This is raw. This is where it gets graphic. Um, I'm only gonna give you probably one example because they are so graphic, so um, this is how it distorts your worship. This is just one. This could be repeated in tons of other ways. Sally is five years old. Her parents drop her off at Sunday school every week. There, she learns a song that she loves. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They're weak, but he's strong. Sally likes that song. Sally goes home and gets molested by a family member every week, several times a week. While she's getting molested, she remembers, Jesus loves me. And the song says that He is strong. And so maybe she starts to pray to Jesus. Jesus, please stop. Stop the pain. Stop it, please. I know you love me. Nothing happens. The abuse doesn't stop for years. Sally's view of God becomes distorted because Sally grows up remembering I prayed and God did nothing. So either God doesn't love me or he's not strong enough to stop even my family member. And this is what you see common in many victims of sex assault, how it distorts their worship of God. Many of them start to come away thinking, how could God love me and let this happen? Or if God is all-powerful and good, why wouldn't he stop it? You see? And so when you come and you try and counsel Sally one day when she's older or you learn and you try and start telling her that Jesus loves her, that God cares about her, it's gonna fall on deaf ears. You have a lot of work to do. It distorts his power. It distorts his love. It distorts his goodness. It distorts his holiness. And now I could stand up here and I could attempt to to explain the puzzle of God's sovereignty and power and evil to somebody like Sally and say, this is how it works out because we have to say from the scripture that if he wanted to stop it, he could have. We saw that in Genesis already. You remember I kept you from sinning against me from Abimelech in the dream. I could try and explain that to you, but that's not always exactly what helps, even if you know it. So if that's your hurt, if you're in here and that's your hurt, and maybe you know somebody you're going to encounter like this one day, let me comfort you with something else. It's not necessarily his sovereignty. Let me comfort you by simply stating God's wrath towards that sin and that sinner who did that. Brothers and sisters, God hates sin. He hates sin in all of its forms. And his holy fury and anger will be poured out on all workers of iniquity. And if he doesn't do it immediately, it's because Seth... The book of Thessalonians says he is storing up wrath. They are storing up wrath for themselves when he does come back because God hates sin, especially the sin of those that prey upon the weak and the oppressed. I want to encourage you, God's wrath against those who do such things is awful and is coming. Your abuser, whoever it was, will not go unpunished. His arm is not powerless to save. And his justice will be founded on perfect righteousness. There will be no plea deals. There will be no probation. There will be no defense attorneys. There will only be holy wrath and perfect justice for everybody who's not in Christ Jesus. So if that's you, if you struggle with God in this way, your, your image of God, your worship has been distorted, I want to encourage you. One, that offense is awful and it will be paid for. Two, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the invisible God. Begin to read and know about this man who became, the God who became a man. And let your eyes readjust as you behold the glory and power of Christ moving through the Gospels how he walks and he picks up the downcast, how he invites the sinners and the broken and restores them, how he deals with those who have been afflicted and persecuted and just his grace and gentleness. He is, he is the image of the invisible God. Your image of that invisible God has been distorted. Let it become readjusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ at the cross, Christ at the cross Executed the wrath of God against sin. And now gives the power in his life to change all people of every creed and color and sin and wickedness and make them into the image of Christ. This is the power of the gospel to save. Number two, sex assault distorts our identities. So not only does it distort our worship with God as, we, as they view the God through the lens of their abuse, it distorts your identity of yourself, how they view themselves. It's common to feel a number of emotions for a long time. Guilt, fear, shame, anger, despair, Denial, depression, loneliness. It's not uncommon to see strugglers, victims, be be feeling guilty. Our culture doesn't help it when it says, well, she asked for it. She shouldn't have worn those clothes. Why was she out in that place at the wrong time? Why was Dinah not with her family? She asked for it. And they start to think, maybe I did. Maybe Maybe this is kind of my fault. That's a lie, it's a lie, you never ask for it. No matter what, no matter how much drinking, no matter how unwise you are, it's never okay or excusable for anybody to do that to anyone. So they can feel shame, maybe they might start to think things about themselves like, well if God could have stopped it, if he does love me, and if he let it happen to me, then maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I do deserve it. All sorts of things, depression. Maybe I'm broken, or now I am broken for sure. Who's gonna want me now? If they knew, who would want me now? Or what is my family gonna think if I tell them? They're not gonna believe me, because generally it's somebody that nobody would ever expect. And so they suffer under shame and loneliness and guilt and depression. Sometimes they're manipulated by their abuser into believing it's their fault. I could give you examples of this, but I'm not going to because they're disgusting. How does Christ restore our identity, your identity? How does he restore it? Each one of these points could be like a whole series by themselves, all right? How does he, I just want to tip of the iceberg this, all right? How does he restore your identity? I love this. First, he does it in the incarnation, Christmas, right? Jesus identifies with the suffering. He, the the great almighty, the divine, becomes man. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. A cross was the most even then, and I would say probably even now, shameful way you could die. If you remember, what did the soldiers do to his garments? They took them They took him, they stripped him naked and it's likely that Jesus is hanging up there in his nakedness and bleeding on the cross as he's being mocked. a shameful, shameful way to die. Exposed to everybody, weak. You saved others, save yourselves. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, it says he endured the cross despising the shame. You know shame? Jesus knows shame very well. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So he starts to identify with you in your weakness and in your hurt and in your pain. You despise the shame, he despised. It says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him. There is a joy, there are some joys that are so great that are before us that when we have them, the pain that it took to get that joy just fades away, fades into the background. The one the Bible uses the most is childbirth. There is a pain in childbirth, but when you have the baby, you forget about it. There's a joy that is set before you, that you endure the pain. Because you get a baby. And the Bible says that Christ, that eternity, that our reward in him, that Christ did it for the joy that was set before him. And one day he's going to return. And all of us want to hear these words, but we don't think about the last phrase. Well done, good and faithful servant. What's the next phrase? Enter. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy is going to be so great one day. The incarnation, first, he identifies with your hurting. Second, when you trust him as your Lord, when you trust him as your Savior, the Bible says that everything that Jesus is becomes yours and becomes really, truly you. You. Whatever Jesus is and was, you become by faith in him. What is that? What does the Bible say? Hear this, hear this. Because you feel, when you feel and you've been in sexual assault and been assaulted in this manner and violated, you feel shameful and guilty and alone, broken. What is Jesus? What What does the Bible speak over you? who have suffered. This is what you become in Christ without blemish. Spotless, righteous, not guilty, righteous, child of God, perfect, sons and daughters of the Most High. That becomes your new identity as he restores you and conforms you into his image and likeness. He literally reshapes who you are and calls you beautiful. And so, in Christ, your pain becomes a part of your story, but by no means the final word on who you are final word on who you are is different. It becomes a small piece of the mosaic over time. Brothers and sisters, even the greatest paintings in the world have shades of black. And the shades of black point all the focus on the real central figure, and one day your pain will become a portion of that mosaic that will point all glory and praise and honor to the power and beauty of Christ, and you'll be restored. A biblical counselor said this, God's word, this is an awful chapter, God's word does not pretend. God's word doesn't pretend. It presents a real and raw picture of the damage done in the life of a sexual abuse victim. At the same time, God's word offers authoritative, sufficient, relevant, and profound wisdom for the ongoing journey from victim to victor in Christ. So what can you do to heal? Let me give you some practical takeaways and wrap it up and close. What can you do, if you're here and you're hearing this, what can you do to heal or to start the process, rather, of healing? Number one, talk to somebody. If you're in silence and loneliness, the best thing you can do is talk to somebody. Talk to a trusted friend, a trusted family member, a trusted pastor, a counselor maybe, if you've never spoken about it before. Maybe you don't have somebody like that in your life that you can trust. let's pray for one then. We'll go back further. We'll pray for one. God created you to live in community. God created you to be with others and to be known and to know others. So let's pray pray for one then. Pray, God, give me somebody that I can talk to and trust. Somebody that I can confide in that will give you godly counsel. Shared sorrow can be endured. Shared sorrow can be endured. The next, do whatever you can to know Jesus better. Do whatever you can to learn and know more about Jesus better. He is the great physician of the soul. Where others have failed, he will not. He will heal. His promise shall stand. His invitation is sound. Come to me and all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. And this truth is pertains to sex assault as it does to any other thing. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So would you come this morning? Would you come this week? Maybe you don't have to come because I understand sometimes to come down and What what do they think about me? Come see me this week before I leave. Come see me when I get back. Shoot me an email if you want. Text, message, phone call. We'll connect you with people who can help. We would love to pray for you and help you so you don't have to suffer alone. Come and let us help. Maybe you're here and you're like, Pastor Randy, this sermon is not for me. No. If you haven't suffered in this way, praise God. Praise God. But I guarantee you this, you know somebody, whether it be a friend or a family member, who has. Guaranteed. For all of us, be aware of the problem. Be aware of those, your brothers and sisters who are suffering in silence. Pray for them, lift them up. Pray through the church directory. Lord, if there's any pain in this person's life that I don't know about or nobody knows about, would you shed light on it? Would you bring it to light? Would you comfort them? And then pray that you would maybe become equipped to serve them, victims of this awful abuse, that we as a church would become better equipped to serve in this area. It's massive, I guarantee you. If we were to put a sign out that said, we counsel like this, we would have lots of people. We wouldn't have enough counselors to help. I know this for a fact. So maybe pray about whether the Lord is putting it on your heart to learn more. Maybe next year you'll be coming with me to a biblical counseling conference, all right? Because I can't do it alone. We need others who can grow up and be strong in the scriptures and in the gospel to give the hope to those who are hurting. And then last, let's pray as a church that this will become a place, as it is, that people can come here and they can see the tangible grace of God and the power of the gospel and the ministry of his people. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that I have been faithful in discharging your hope of the gospel in Christ this morning. Lord, if there are any here who are suffering in silence, Lord, may you start to heal and restore them. May they see the love of God Of Christ for them and Your death on their behalf and Your wrath against their offenders, God and Lord, may You restore what is broken. God, may You restore our worship and our identity and create community at Calvary Baptist Church for Your name and Your glory. I pray. Amen. Thank you.